Okay, so uh, thank you guys. Can we just pray again? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sang those words, purify my heart. I choose to be holy. Father, I pray that as we sang those words, that it was real, that we meant what we were saying. Lord, we, we confess that perhaps the time Christians lie the most is whenever we're singing songs. So Lord, I pray. E even through what is said tonight, as we go through your word, Lord, even as, as you're speaking to us already, Lord, Lord, I, bring us to that place where either it's happening or at least we can finish the night by saying, yes, I honestly mean it when I say, I, I choose to be holy. Cleanse me, Lord. Everything that is not of you, anything that is not worthy of the Christian life, anything that is not worthy uh, to be associated with the life that I want, Lord, take it away. that only that which is good, only that which is pure, only that which edifies and builds up and encourages, only that which is of true worth and of true love and of true value, Lord, that they would be the things that remain and define us and show out to the world. So, Lord, purify our hearts, Lord. And so in doing that, we, we turn to you, the one who is so holy and so pure, the one before whom no sin or contamination can bear to be. And Lord, we would ask that you would work in our hearts tonight. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. So here, here's where we finish this morning, okay? We, we finished 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And as we closed out this morning, we really had this kind of filter on for what we were really talking about, okay? We looked at it in lots of different kind of different angles, um, and it was basically make sure uh, your commitments, make sure your influences, make sure the things that uh, work in you and stir you up, that they're not holding you back from walking with God. And of course, there's that famous verse, do not be unequally yoked. And so we have to be very careful about what influences us. Do, do the programs that we watch influence how we think? Do uh, the, the friends that we have uh, and, and how we socialize with them, the, 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 the way we conduct ourselves when we're working, how do these influence our walk? The last couple of verses from chapter 6 says, Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, acceptance. Verse 18, and then I will be a father to you. That's a relationship. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And then straight into chapter 7, and says, since we have these promises, beloved, you who are dearly loved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I don't know if it was Scott or John that picked that last song, but I think they, they had a look at this passage before they did. These promises that we finished on this morning 
and, and yes, okay, maybe we had our emphasis somewhere slightly else, but really this, this first verse of chapter 7 should really be the last verse of chapter 6. But verse 1 sums it all up, and maybe I could have just done all this, this morning's message in, in just this one line. When you shun sin and pursue God, you will find that you have more room for Him in your life. It's really the heart of it. When, uh, it's really simple, but so many Christians miss this basic thought of how to live. We live with so little difference than from when we were not saved. We kind of sprinkle a wee bit more church in. We maybe read our Bible once a week or pray whenever we sort of think we're going to run out of fuel before we get to the petrol station. We pray. And then you might hear these same people saying, you know, I've been saved for a couple of years, but it just I don't feel like I know God all that well. Hmm. When you go back to, first, uh, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we read that we, our lives are like pots of clay. But when you take that analogy, you have to remember that we can only fill our lives with a certain amount. You can only put so much into the pot before it starts overflowing. If we fill our lives with unspiritual things, that leaves less room for Christ. But if we fill our lives with Christ, there's more room for him. And ultimately, we will be more happy, more holy, more content. That's what Paul meant when he says, I must decrease and he must increase. I've got to take less, more of me out of the equation so that it leaves more room for him in the pot. And so look, that's kind of where we were this morning. And that kind of links us in. Verse 2. Make room in the pot. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. And we have taken advantage of no one. Now, why would you have to say that in the Bible? It's because that's what Paul was being accused of. It was part of the reason why he fell out with this church in the first place. The first letter of Corinthians is kind of a tough book to read. Okay, yes, there's some really nice quotes um, in chapter 13 about love being patient and kind and all the rest of it. We, we do it at weddings. But generally speaking, First Corinthians is tough because he's rebuking them. He's telling them off. He, uh, he's uh, calling them out on, on their pride, their arrogance, their incest, which is never a good thing in the church. It's never good anywhere, but it's never good in a church for, for drunkenness. And so he, this, the reaction to some people, to Paul writing that letter, as it is to anyone who has to maybe confront someone and, and pull rank, okay? And maybe it happens in work or maybe it happens in school or at home, wherever it is. And there'll be some people who maybe take a wee bit of a, uh, take it thick, I think is maybe the best way of saying it, to Paul's tone. Paul's, he's not even here. It's pretty overbearing, don't you think? I don't think he should talk to me like that. I don't think, who, who is he to talk to me like that? And so Paul says, guys, you know us. We haven't wronged anyone. No one. Uh, now, next Sunday, we're going to talk about the offering that Paul is trying to get to the starving Christians in Jerusalem. There was a real need there, and there were other churches in the area, and they were all on board. They had all signed up, and Paul was going, yes, but Corinth, why aren't you chipping in? Maybe some of them were still questioning Paul. 
Uh, Paul, because, okay, follow me, ma'am. I've asked all these questions when anyone tries to take my money. Uh, how can we be sure all the money's going to go to where it's go supposed to be going? All right. Anyone ask that question? You know, whenever someone's taking money off you on the street, uh, is it going all to the, that place? <laughs> you know, um, we've got needs here that need to take care of. Maybe we should be prioritizing what's going on here before we start giving money away to the people in Jerusalem. What have they done for us? The Corinthians knew Paul. Now, it's always good to be wise with money. It's always good to be stewards of that. We don't want to just hand it out anywhere, anyone. We want to have accountability, especially when it comes to the Lord's money, especially when it comes to the church. We want to be good stewards of that. But these people knew Paul. They knew that he wasn't the sort who'd either make up a crisis to take the money off them for no reason, and they knew that he wouldn't be the sort that if there was a real crisis, he wouldn't skim money off the top and, you know, add them in face. So he says, I don't say this to condemn you. For, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together, to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affirmation, or in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Oh, just lovely couple of verses. Some people find it hard to be loved. Some people find it hard to be loving, but sometimes some people just find it hard to be loved, to receive it. I've met some people and they're just all crusty and sour, and you just think, oh, oh, vinegar face again. It's hard. And maybe they're like that for, for good reason. There's maybe a backstory that we don't know about, but no matter what you do or what you say, boy, they've always got something negative to talk about. Wh why are you doing that? Uh, what, what do you mean when you say that? What are you, what are you trying to get at? Uh, nobody does something for nothing. Everybody's got an angle. What's, what's your angle? And you just come away exhausted. God, I'm just trying to be nice. I'm just trying to be, be a Christian. Would you just ever let me be a Christian? Because you're making me not want to be a Christian towards you. <laughs> and they can't open up and receive that love. It's a horrible place to be in. Whatever got them to that place, it's a miserable place to be in. Broken relationships maybe have hurt them. And it makes them unwilling to form new ones. They don't want to risk the hurt again. But it, and that leaves them isolated. And maybe some of the Corinthians are in that position. What, what's your angle, Paul? Why should we be like that? What's going on? Why, why, why? And look at Paul's response here. Here's how Paul diffuses crusty old people. He doesn't slobber. He doesn't call them stupid. He sees that it could be that there's people hurting that's causing them to be selfish with the money. And so he says, okay, I'm not going to hurt you because you're already hurting. That's not how we're going to fix this. You don't kick someone when they're dying. And at the same time, if, they're, if, uh, 
if they're feeling low and they're feeling down and they're feeling discouraged, he's not going to add guilt to that burden. He's not going to weigh them down even more. That's not how he responds. Rather, what he tries to do is build them up, to lift them up, to affirm his position rather than attacking their position. Hugely important when you're trying to change someone's attitude. Rather than attacking their position, you affirm your position. And you try and bring them then across rather than getting them to dig trenches and um, polarizing the argument. And so he turns around and instead of criticizing, he says, you know what, guys, I am genuinely proud of you. Despite everything, despite everything that's going on, I am overflowing with joy. Never, ever underestimate the power of a kind word. It sounds really simple, and it's, it's almost insulting that You'd have to say that in a church, but never underestimate the power of a kind word, of encouraging someone. It was probably just over a year ago uh, I was speaking at Youth Fellowship. I was doing Hebrews chapter 1, so I'd been probably quite near the start, so maybe October time, just over a year ago. And we were talking, we were chatting, and I did something that I never do, and especially with young people. I, I give an appeal at the end. And I, I just said, look, guys, if um, bow your heads, keep your eyes closed. And if you've been impacted, if you want to talk to me, if you want to talk to some of the leaders afterwards, all I want you to do is just open your eyes and look up at me. Let me see what's happening. No one else is going to see. Nobody else is going to pay attention. Just open your eyes and let me see. About half of them ended up looking up at me many of them with tears in their eyes. Now, I'll be honest, I can't quite remember the segue into, from Hebrews 1 towards the, the appeal, but I remember one of the things that I said was, I am proud of you. I'm proud of you. Uh, and I remember rattling off a couple of things. And I acknowledge the fact that maybe some of them had never heard those words before. And you could see that actually someone just saying it meant so much. They had never heard it before and it resonated so deeply. Never underestimate the power of kind words. And so Paul, rather than attacking them for being awkward, rather than pressing down on them because they're being a wee bit stubborn, he, he affirms his love. He affirms that he st is coming from this world. He, he's still proud of them. He still loves them. And then he moves on to mention some of the troubles that he has had. Because when we, that's him and his team, came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. He was getting it tight, fighting without, and fear within. So literally, he, he's saying, look, there was opposition all around. There was people here after us. But the word um, uh, fear within there literally is anxieties. Okay? And if you've ever met someone who has anxieties or, or panic attacks... That's, that's what they're going through. That's how difficult it was for them. 
But God, who comforts the downcast, literally suffering depression, suffering depression, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing and your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Now, remember the background of this letter. Remember the kind of the soap opera that's been going around. Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus. Uh, there had been issues with the church, and so he wrote 1 Corinthians, and he sent Timothy just afterwards. And Timothy came back and goes, Paul, they're not paying any attention. They, that did not go down well. They, they kind of put it in the bin. They rejected it. They're not listening. And so Paul drops everything, and he goes to Corinth himself, and, and, and he tries to speak to them. He tries to reason with them, and he's speaking to the people who are kind of trying to fill his shoes and, and, and uh, influence things and do things that isn't really in line with Scripture. And he's heartbroken because the people who he thought would be defending him and standing up for him and at least backing him up in this, they're so quiet. And, he's, and, and he leaves and he's brokenhearted and the, and the gulf between them is, is even bigger. And so he writes this sorrowful letter and then he sends Titus with it because he doesn't want to face them again until things are right. He doesn't want to make it worse. And so he sends Titus with this letter. And he's waiting for Titus in Macedonia. He's waiting in Troas. He's waiting in Troas, waiting to see if, what's Titus going to say? What's Titus going to what's, what's the report going to be? And he can't wait in Troas. And he has to move on to Macedonia. And finally, Titus arrives and he appears with this glowing report. And then Paul responds and he writes this letter, 2 Corinthians. Some people have this really warped view of who Paul is. That he, he's like this firebrand, hardened theologian. He's not afraid of anyone. He doesn't take nonsense from anyone. And he kind of just has this scowl on him all the time. It feels strange maybe reading passages like this. When he shows us openly he opens himself up and he shows the fact that he was suffering from anxiety that that he tells us look we we were depressed we, we genuinely had fears and it genuinely was deep i don't know how that makes you feel about paul but it makes me feel a whole lot better about my christian life it makes me feel so much better because i'm going okay right well at least at least paul's in the same boat as me And he opens up and he shows us his weaknesses, his insecurities, and his fears, his depression. And I love that because maybe it's just me. But do you think that maybe there is this culture in churches and culture among Christians that we try to hide everything rather than opening ourselves up and saying, look, this is what we were going through. We actually try to paper over the cracks. And we say amen, and we say praise the Lord, and we shove all the problems deep down in, and we just smile. How are you doing? Doing great. Praise the Lord. And then we get home. Oh. It's tough. We've got to that place, I think, because there are many Christians who 
meaning well but doing harm have, have said, how come you're not smiling? Uh, where, where's the joy of the Lord in your life? Come on, you're saved. Tell your face. And all that does is subconsciously, in our brains we connect this idea that happy is good, sad is bad, and, and, and because we should be happy, then, then we, we want to be happy. We want to show people that we're happy, and we don't want people to rebuke us and to feel bad for us or tell us off because we're not being very good Christians because we're sad. And it leaves us feeling fake. It leaves us feeling empty. It leaves us feeling disconnected because we have husband and wives maybe fighting the bit out on Saturday night or, or maybe Sunday morning trying to get the kids out of bed or trying to get them ready. And you're sitting in silence in the car and you're kind of looking at each other saying, well, I know something should be said, but it's not going to be. I'm not going to say the first thing. I'm not going to say the first thing. And, and we get out of the car park and then it's almost like, ah, Hello, sunshine, lollipops, and, and, and we're just so happy. And it's like, oh, darling, let me fix your halo. Oh, I thank you, darling. I love you. I love you too. I love you more. I love you the most. And we walk into church, and everyone's happy, and everyone's smiling. And then church is over, and we get back into the car, and Shh, don't you touch me. You now, you are laughing because I think that's maybe some people are kind of going, uh-huh, 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 yep, yeah, mm-hmm. How much better would it be? How much more authentic would our church experiences be if when we feel sad, when we're getting it tight, and the person at the door of the church says, ah, oh, hello, how are you? You say, you know what, man? <laughs> I'm having a bad Sunday. Would you pray for me? And then the usher did pray for you. I'd probably find that the, the people on the doors might be the busiest people in the church on, on a Sunday. Because we'd all want to do it. Now, four times between verses 4 and 7, we, hear th- we see this word, paraclesis, or versions of that word. The, the word literally translated means um, comfort. When we read the word comfort in chapter 1, the God of all comfort, the God of paraclesis. Um, 29 times in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses it. It's one of the major themes of 2 Corinthians. It is a good word. It's a nice word. It tells me that Christians should be people who draw near to help people. Forget putting on masks. When you get among Christians, it should be people who are willing to get alongside you and help. So you're prepared to take the mask down. You're prepared to be honest, I'm having a bad Sunday, I'm having a bad Monday, I'm having a bad week, I'm having a bad November, I'm having a bad 2019. And to talk to people about it because you know that people will comfort you. They will draw near to build you up, to help. Sometimes we can't always be physically near someone. So we'll text or email. It's okay, I suppose. It lets people know that we're thinking about them. But it does, it's not really comforting ideally you want to be physically there with someone to have a physical assurance that they are not alone some christians confuse the word comforting with exhorting um they say exhorting sometimes i think they're just exhausting 
but we often confuse the words. Sometimes we think exhorting someone, you know, that means that we get to sort of shout at them a wee bit and scold them. Oi, you, you're a sinner. You're a bad Christian. You're not doing things right. You're not pleasing the Lord. You're doing it wrong. They're like, dude, why are you shouting at me? What are you doing? Why are you talking to me like that? Why? I'm comforting you with the truth. I've the gift of exhortation. They're tainting the gift. Because it's about building up. It's about stirring up the foes. But I've got the gift. Well, you maybe have a gift, but it's not the gift of exhortation. It's not the gift of comforting. You've maybe got the gift of condemnation. There's some Christians who have that gift and they love it. I wonder how many prodigal sons and daughters are out there who have put off coming home because of the unloving characters who they know are waiting for them in the house. Paul needs encouragement here. He knows the church needs encouragement. So he doesn't put the boot in. He doesn't weigh down on them. He doesn't attack their position. He doesn't slag them off. He says, listen, I am proud of you. I love you. I'm getting it tight. And, and, and the natural response is, well, Paul, we're proud of you too. Well, we love you. What, what can we do to help you? Do you see how it's a very different conversation from, boy, you're thick as chump. Would you sort yourselves out? That doesn't prov provoke the same heartfelt response of, Paul, we love you too. How can we help? For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Which letter is he talking about specifically? Is it 1 Corinthians? Is it the letter that happened in between? Uh, the one that Titus took? It's hard to know for sure. Um, I have no idea, I'll be honest. I think it's probably the letter that we don't have in between 1 and 2 Corinthians simply because the next couple of verses are going to go on to talk about Titus. So I think it's the one that he took. It's the, um, but I don't know. I don't think it particularly matters, I suppose. <laughs> um, the point is, he says, look, I didn't write, I didn't like having to write it. I didn't like having to talk about the things I had to talk about. I didn't like having to confront this. I didn't like having to deal with it. But boy, I'm glad I did it. It was worth it because I see that at least I've landed, landed with you. I'm glad that I can see God working in you now. And that only makes me more proud of you. It only makes me rejoice more. For godly grief. Um, yeah. For godly grief, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance. Hugely important word. means to change your mind, to change your direction, to turn around in lifestyle. It's a huge theme of the Christian message, repentance. Uh, I think that some people maybe will criticize 
uh, churches, oh, you don't talk about repentance enough. Oh, yes, we need to talk about repentance. But it's interesting, though. It depends what you think the gospel is really all about. Is the message of repentance simply to say, you're wrong, you are a sinner, and you need to apologize. You need to say sorry to God. Or is it more than that? Is repentance requiring, demanding more than that? That it's no longer resisting God, but it's actually a movement towards intimacy with God? That it's a change of focus and attitude and devotion? That repentance is not simply to stop doing sin? To say, okay, I'm going down this path, but I'm going to just stop here, and that's me, I'm repenting? Or is it to actually start moving back in the right direction again, towards God, closer to God, a life marked by repentance. Think, let's see, um, okay. Take like a, a really generic example, like uh, a child who's been sneaking sweets out of a jar or a tin or something, okay, um, just before their dinner, and they were told several times, do not eat those sweets. They got caught out, and they've been told off, and they have been disciplined and all the rest of it, and they promise to never do it again. And so you're listening to that, you're talking to them, and instead of moving away from the jar of sweets, they stay beside the jar of sweets. And in fact, they just keep their hand kind of just on the inside rim of the jar of sweets. And as a parent, you say, uh, would you move away from those jars of sweets? Well, technically, I'm not taking any of them. Technically, I'm not. (laughs) Because you know that whenever they say that they are sorry, when they have repented, when they say that they're not going to do it again, you expect them to instinctively say, okay, I need to take my hand out of the jar. I need to move away from it. I need to get put distance between me and the thing that I have done wrong. You see, there's two different types of guilt. There's two different types of sorrow. One is a worldly guilt that um, you feel only because you got caught. You know? Says, oh, I'm so sorry that you were here and saw me do the thing that I was doing. I felt fine about it up until that point, but now I'm feeling really bad and really guilty. It's remorse. Yes, definitely. But it's really more about timing. (laughs) certainly not godly, because ultimately really what you wish is you haven't got caught. That's the difference between Peter and Judas Iscariot. Both men betrayed Jesus in the build-up to his, his execution. Judas betrayed him to the soldiers and got some money. He felt remorse. He felt guilty. And so he took the money back. They refused. So he bought a field with the money. And in his sorrow, in his depression, in his lostness, he hung himself, committed suicide. Peter also betrayed Jesus. Having followed Jesus with the soldiers, he, he, he denies Christ, he denies him, he swears, he curses, and gets angry and animated, the cock crows, and there's this realization uh, as his eyes meet with Jesus and his heart sinks, he goes out, he weeps bitterly, but his reaction is different 
the sorrow brings about a different result. Rather than going and getting lost in the darkness, it moves him towards repentance. Peter fundamentally changed that night. You follow the life of Peter very closely. You look at his life after that night. It was a turning point, a very stark turning point in his life. Godly grief that produced a marked act of repentance. His hand didn't stay in the jar. He didn't just kind of get it by on technicalities and say, well, technically I'm not really doing it anymore. He didn't start looking for loopholes to kind of stay as close to the thing that he wanted to do as possible. But rather he saw, okay, this is a totally different thing. I want nothing more to do with this. I am moving away and I'm being a different person from this. Repentance. Because the sorrow was a godly one. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. See, the church had a reputation for allowing sin, for being easy on sin, um, but not anymore. The, the Corinthians have gone about this repentance eagerly. Some people, when, when, when they sin, um, they say, okay, I'm not, I'll not do that anymore, but they're doing it with such a heavy heart. It's like you're asking them to give up one of their children. It's like, oh, don't know. this is the hardest thing ever. Why? Why would you make me do this? And you're saying, okay, you're saying the right things. You're, I suppose, in theory, doing the right things. But you can see in your heart, you can see in your attitude, your heart isn't really in giving it up. You don't really want to give up the sin. You don't really want to walk away from it. Uh, that desire isn't there. It's not going to last because you're going to find a technicality. You're going to find a loophole that allows you to put your hand in and around the jar again because you just want to get back there again. What eagerness, what, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us may be revealed to you in the sight of God. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, uh, Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the first one. Then Jesus goes straight on and says, And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about um, being happy when you lose someone and you're grieving and you're bereaved. Rather, these words that are up there are ones that we've been talking about already tonight. Happy are those who mourn, who grieve with godly grief over their sin because they shall be comforted, they shall be lifted up and drawn in by God. That's the essence of it. Those things that we've been talking about, that grieving, and, but also then that comfort. So you're not happy that, that, you know, a family member has passed away. Of course not. That's not the context of this. Rather, it's bigger than that. It's about the blessings of genuine repentance and the nearness it brings to those who are cut off by God because God drags us in. He brings us in. He lifts us up. He comforts us because, yes, we were sinners, but now we know that we are saved by the grace of God and He comforts us as we grieve, as we mourn what we have done against Him. 
And so he's saying, look, I, uh, Paul is saying, look, I mourn my condition. I'm not moaning. I'm mourning about it. Uh, and I'm being moved towards change. I'm being moved towards repentance. Uh, think about the life of David. Okay, in Second Samuel, uh, he, had, now, he had many different kinds of sorrow in his life. His father-in-law, King Saul, tried to kill him on many occasions, and he spent years hiding in caves in, in, uh, in Israel. Um, he had to bury more than one son. He had to bury a son who was a week old, who he had with Bathsheba whenever um, he had committed the affair. Uh, he had to bury another son, Absalom, who rose up in rebellion against him. He had a tough life. But here's the thing that broke David's sin the most. We read it in, in um, yeah, what broke, him, what broke him the most was his sin. Psalm 51 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, I'm not just sorry I'm caught. I am sorry that I ever went near this in the first place. I am so sorry. Change me. Repentance. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. It wasn't because he was perfect or that he was so holy or, 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 or consistently holy. Rather, his sin marked such a godly grief in him, or at least it did after the prophet Nathan called him out on it. And it brought him to such a low place. It brought him to such a breaking point, a sorrowing place. He mourned and he was comforted. But, oh, the precious work of repentance, it produced a real change. Sometimes there are people who can be taught the wrong idea about repentance. That when things are going wrong in your life, when things are going a wee bit haywire, you can bring Jesus in, you can get off the throne of your own life and put Jesus up there for a day or two, and he will give you peace, he'll give you joy, he'll get you calm, he'll get you through, and then you can take over again. And so what so many people do is they add Jesus into their lifestyle. Things don't really change. Their friendships are the same. The way they socialize is the same. The way their marriage is working out is exactly the same. Um, but, but they kind of just sprinkle a wee bit of Jesus in. They sprinkle a wee bit of the Bible in. They sprinkle a wee bit of it all in. And what happens is they are miserable. They are miserable as Christians because repentance is what leads to salvation. Religious experiences are just that. They're just momentary experiences. It, it doesn't provide a lasting thing. They, they prayed a prayer. They raised their hand. They came forward at a meeting. They did something like that. But at no point did they ever truly have this godly sorrow over their sin that brought them to a place of repentance that marked a real defining change. They may be more like Judas who just got sorry they were caught out and found out that they were doing things wrong. But at no point did it actually lead them back towards God. You don't just turn to God. You turn away from sin to turn to God. And then you grow in godliness. There's three reasons why people don't like that message. It's because, number one, we're more interested in recruiting people 
in numbers. It's easier to coax people into church if you promise not to tell them that they're bad people. Uh, and so we want to tell people that they're good and there's promises and there's all nice things and everything's easy and good and as long as you have faith. Second reason is it's not a popular message. Some people may not come back to church whenever you tell them the gospel. But you see, the thing about the gospel is the message is of good news. But the message of good news starts with bad news that we are sinners, that there's nothing that we can do, that we are in trouble and we are unable to save ourselves. That's the starting point of the gospel. But the good news is that in our sin, in our sorrow, we are not without a savior who can redeem us and can pay the price and can set us free. That's the gospel. But the problem is that before we get to the good news of the gospel, they're already rejecting it because they can't get past the bad news that they are sinners. And that's why Peter and Paul copied Christ's example of not only comforting the afflicted, but afflicting the comfortable that they met. Because if you're comfortable in your sin, you need to be afflicted. You need to get uncomfortable. You need to be made to feel the weight of that and that's going to move you to a sorrow that's going to lead you to repentance, that's going to lead you towards God. said there was number three people reject the idea of sin so the idea for someone like me to stand up on a pulpit and to say what you're doing is a sin it is wrong that is offensive it doesn't matter what the bible says who are you to decide what is right and what is wrong in my life and so sin is a bad word let's not call it sin let's call it a, a foible Let's call it a hang-up. Let's call it a, a whoopsie. Let's call it a lapse in judgment. Let's call it anything other than what it is called in the Bible, which is sin. But you see, the thing is, our Savior didn't die to save, our, save us from hang-ups. The Savior came to save sinners. So blessed are those who mourn who admit their true standing before God, for they shall be, what? Comforted. Lifted. Drawn into God. Comfort only comes when you confess your sin before God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting for Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What a wonderful thing to read. Whenever you've wronged someone and you know that you are the one who's in the wrong, uh, the guy doesn't turn around and kind of keep you on the naughty step for a while. He doesn't keep you in time. He says, guys, I am proud of you. I love you. You've made me so happy. You made Titus happy. He loves you even more from having spent this time with you. Oh, you it must mean so much. 
What a wonderful open heart from Paul. From people who had hurt him. From people who had wronged him. And yet his attitude isn't to put them on a suspended sentence or to put them on probation. One more strike, you're out. Final warning. He doesn't treat them like that. He doesn't attack their position. He affirms his position. And there's this wonderful lesson on how a church on an individual basis can respond to someone who is repenting. I am so happy that God's brought you to this place. I am so proud of you of working through this. Watching you work through this has made me rejoice, has made me praise God. I love you. I'm thanking you for what you're doing. I'm thanking God for it. Thank you for being a blessing. This is Paul's heart. He's not a firebrand preacher. He's just like a friend who's busting with joy. Oh man, I'm so happy. I'm so, I can't believe this is happening. Yes, thank you. Oh, you're, you're making me feel so good. And so he says, like, you've done my heart so good. Listen, maybe next time someone apologizes to you, and I'm assuming in that they're genuine in when they apologize, not just sorrowing over the fact that they got caught. How are you going to respond to them? Are you going to keep them on the naughty step? Or are you going to let them know that the fact that they're working through this, that they're growing, is just a blessing to you? That you're genuinely so happy and encouraged that they're seeing them grow in their faith and you'll gladly boast of them to others. Or you fall into the pattern that so many Christians fall into, so many churches fall into, where you're going to make them feel that they're still owing you something. That, okay, it's okay that God can forgive you, but, you know, you still have to put in a wee bit of extra legwork for us because, you know, God forgives you freely, but you still owe us. As if, you know, we're more hurt than what God was. Look, God's up there. He, he doesn't really quite get it. You really hurt me. So, so you need to, we're going to keep you out a wee bit of this. And I'm not going to shower you with praise until you earn it, until you get to a certain point, until you grovel, until you prove yourself and prove yourself and prove yourself. Paul jumps in and he loves them. He affirms his position. Guys, I know we're working on our relationship. I just want you to know, I am so proud of you. I have every confidence in you. I'm not doubting you. What, what, what I'm seeing is good and I'm loving it. Praise God for you. What a wonderful way to take on someone who's hurting and someone that's broken and someone that's, that's trying to find their way back to God. I wonder, are you going to encourage someone in that walk? Or are you going to encourage someone in that, in that repentance? Because the hardest thing to do is admit to people that you've been wrong. Don't tell anyone. But yesterday, we were going to Lisbon. And I said, Ruth, leave it with me. Go and take a shortcut. It didn't quite work out. My wife, gracious as ever. Is this the way to Lisburn? I think we both know it's not. 
Thank you for admitting it. Sometimes we, it's not always easy to admit we're in the wrong. It's not always easy to repent. Don't make it harder for people. Don't make it harder for people. We want to make it easier for people to repent. We want to make it easier to build up those bridges again. We want to make it easier. We're going to sing a song now, Living Hope, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer afterwards. I'm going to ask the musicians if you just want to come up, guys. 